Hello, everybody. Welcome back for another week of Ranching Reboot. It's great to have you here. I just got back from the Wyoming Farm, Ranch, and Hemp Expo in Torrington, Wyoming. And let me tell you, guys, that was a long drive. It was just over nine hours door to door. And I like to take back roads. So I went down a lot of roads I've never been and seen a lot of country that I've never seen before. I had a lot of fun hanging out with Justin and Wyatt Harris from Wild Ass Soap Company. Justin and I were on an ag panel together. And our friend Mike Calicrate was there on the first day to give one of his excellent talks. And I want to say thanks to all my friends and fans and podcast listeners that came up and said hello. One of the things we talk about often is how to get more out of your resource base than just livestock. Let me tell you about Land Trust. Land Trust is a platform to connect sportsmen and outdoor enthusiasts with farmers and ranchers and landowners just like you. Land Trust is for more than just hunting. With access to over a million acres of private land, there's mushroom foraging in Montana, RV camping in Idaho, Indian artifacts searching in Nebraska, every type of working, uh, excuse me, working ranch tour or cattle working experience you could think of. Heck, you could even come book a bird watching tour or beaver viewing experience on my ranch. Camping, stargazing, river fishing, pond swimming, if you can imagine an activity on your place, Land Trust and their team of traveling reps are waiting to help you generate some more extra income. To learn more, click on the link in the description and get signed up today. Speaking of other ways besides livestock to make a few extra bucks, check out Grassroots Carbon. They're still looking for more acres to sign up this year. It's incredibly low risk and can be very lucrative to rotational grazers. Time is running out to get in on the carbon gold rush this year. Go to grassrootscarbon.com reboot or click on the link in the description. That's grassrootscarbon.com reboot. Support for this episode is also provided by my amazing patrons on patreon.com slash Rancher and my subscribers on Spotify. You guys rock, as always. So you know how I said it was a really long drive to Torrington? Well, when I got there, my legs and hips were just stowed up something terrible. I could barely walk. Well, my friends at Wild Ass Soap Company hooked me up with some of their cold-ass muscle gel infused with hemp seed oil and broad-spectrum CBD oil. Man, the relief was almost instant with their 400 milligram formula. It's great for sore muscles or painful joints. Get some today at wildasssoaps.com slash reboot and use the co- coupon code reboot for 10% off. That's wildasssoaps.com slash reboot and the coupon code reboot. In this week's episode, Mr. Doug Ferguson, a.k.a. Mr. Cattlemaster, and I hopped on Zoom and had a little chat. We dive deep into the world of sell-by marketing, the nuanced impacts of stored forage, interest rates, and the future of livestock in the face of rapidly rising land costs in the West. If you're looking for inspiration on how to tackle some of the ever-changing challenges in ag, plug in and reboot your thinking about farming, ranching, and food systems. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Mr. Ferguson, good morning, sir. It's great to uh, great to have you here. I'm glad we could sit down and do this. How are you? I'm I'm good, Brian. How are you? I'm great, and uh, seems like the weather's kind of turned, and it's not quite as 
blazing hot anymore. Kind of looking forward to the downhill ride of summer. That's uh, that's where I'm at. That is that is no kidding. So for those of us unfamiliar with Mr. Cattlemaster, why don't you give us your 30-second elevator spiel? Uh, you know, grew up in southeast Nebraska, and when I was a young man, I just fell in love with cattle and decided that's what I wanted to do with my life. Uh, only had three goals. Wanted to ride bulls, get married, have a family, raise cattle. That's it. Okay. So where are you from there in southeast Nebraska? If you were to uh, look at a map, I am right between Manhattan, Kansas, and Lincoln, Nebraska, just on the north side of the Nebraska-Kansas line. Okay. Is there any uh, any arguments between the Cornhuskers and the Wildcats? Back when we were all in the Big 12, there was. Um, it was a lot of fun to wear a Husker sweatshirt to the Manhattan sale barn on Fridays. You know, we there'd be a lot of jipping across the ring at each other, you know, <laughs> and especially with K-State campus being, what is it, just like two miles down the road from the sale barn. Something that like that. was a that. lot of fun. But then when Nebraska bounced and went to the Big Ten, nobody cared. Okay, that's fair. I'm, I, I'll, I'll have to admit, I don't really follow football a whole lot, but uh, I know there's been huge rivalries up and down that road for the last, I don't know, as long as I've been alive, I suppose. Oh, yeah. You know, and Husker football is so ingrained in the culture here. You know, back in the 90s when we had championship teams, you know, we all knew the play calls by the time we were three years old. And uh, now, it, it, you know, the young people have to Google to see if Nebraska really does have a football team. I'll put it that way. Why do you think that is? Because we suck. <laughs> I mean the the last the last few years have been awful rough. A lot of lot of heartbreaks. Okay, like I said, I I guess I don't follow football near closely enough. Um, so going back to when you were a young man, I I kind of went on your website, read a little bit about your bio. Can you maybe kind of tell the story of how you got interested in marketing? Yeah. Um, listen, I'm a big believer in the law of attraction, so I feel like everything fell into place the way it did for a reason. When I was in school, and I'm talking high school, you know, you can't make a living raising cattle. That's what everybody told me. You got to go to college, get the W-2 with benefits, cattle, something you will do on evenings and weekends. I didn't know what else to do, so I went to college. I met my best friend there. After a few semesters, I dropped out. When I quit riding bulls, his dad calls me one day. You know, my best friend's dad, he calls me. They had a feed yard up in uh, northwest Iowa and asked if I'd be willing to buy cattle for him. I'm like, yeah, I, I will be more than happy to spend your money and drink coffee and, you know, get paid a commission for that. Sounded like a lot of fun, but they had a stipulation. I had to read this website. and at that time, Ann Barnhart was teaching the sell by cattle marketing. And so here it is. The answer is trying to hit me in the face. And like a lot of people, I blew it off. I never did get on a website. One night I delivered a load of cattle up there and they're like, are you reading this website? And I said, no. So they brought me in the office. It's about 1230 at night. 
sat me down, pulled their website up, you know, dial up internet day. So it took a while. <laughs> and they started reading the stuff that she was writing on her blog. And I'm like, man, I have never heard anything like this before. So I got hooked. And I would get on that website every day just to see if she had updated anything, uh, you know, put up a new post or anything like that. She eventually did a school in Kansas City, which is three hours from me. And at the time, you know, she was she was doing schools all over the country. It'd be one in Cheyenne, one in Texas. You don't get any closer than Kansas City to here. So, I, you know, I made the drive down there, two-day school, and I just fell in love with it. I'm like, man, this is it. This is the answer. This is what I'm doing the rest of my life. And that's really all I've done since. Okay. I'm not, I'm not familiar with Anne, but I'm a lot more familiar with, um, mine went blank for a second, Wally Olson and, and Bud Williams. Okay. Can you maybe, uh, do you know what, what, what's the difference or is everybody kind of pretty much the same, just different ways of teaching the same sell by? Oh, there's a difference. Um, excuse me. Um, there are some people that teach sell-by that I've never seen do comparisons with cows. And so that's why some of these cow trades aren't working out the way that people hoped. And then there is another way of doing stalker trades where they use a cost-to-keep comparison instead of cost-of-gain. And the problem with the cost to keep is it does not give you the correct ratio of dollars to pounds on a trade. And what happens then is if people buy a replacement animal that is smaller than their original animal, they will bid away value of gain on that replacement animal. Okay. Okay. We're, we're going to have to go back over some of this because my little my little brain can't quite soak it all in quite as fast as you're saying it. <laughs> oh, I, I, I realize that. And that's, you know, when I do my schools, a lot of times it's easier for me to speak to somebody that's never been exposed to it. I can, I reduce it down into very small, you know, bite-sized bunches and, and, and I can feed it to them. You know, I've explained this to my daughter since I started explaining it to her when she was six and she understands it. If you come into my school and you've been exposed to it somewhere else, we got to go back through some of these paradigms that you've been given, and we got to got to redo some of that. Of course, then the burden of proof falls on me. I've got to prove why one method works better than the other. So for me to try to explain that to you again, if you buy a 400-pound animal and you sell it when it weighs 600, you have a cost against that animal. You've got maybe some vaccines, feed, you know, yardage expenses, all that stuff that goes in it. And you've got the 200 pounds that it gained. So we all know how to figure a cost of gain. Right. You know, dollars per head divided by the pounds gained is your cost of gain. And then you use that number in an algebraic equation to figure out what you can pay for the replacement animal. And you can use any weight, 350 pounds, 400 pounds, 500 pounds. So let's say you buy that 350-pound animal. If you have the correct ratio of dollars per pounds, which is what we call a return on the gain, and you go back below level, and level meaning 
since our original animal weighed 400, we're going to buy a 350 pound animal. So we're going lighter than low. If you use the cost to keep analysis, you will bid away the value of gain on those 50 pounds difference. If you use it, if you, or yeah, if you use the cost to keep, you will bid away that value gain. If you use the return on the gain, which is the ratio of dollars to pounds, you will still capture the value of those 50 pounds on that trade. Okay. So what, what I'm saying is probably in a little bit of plain English is you're overspending for that 350 weight animal using the cost to keep. I I can see that's, that. That's what I mean by bidding away the value of gain. And, you know, we're not talking a whole lot of money. 50 pounds could be the difference. You know, I mean, it could be $10, $15 a head. But you start that. doing that by thousands of them, that's death by thousand cuts. Yeah, and that could be your whole profit margin on that animal, too. That, that could make a year for some people. Okay. Okay. Um, sometimes I kind of feel like a lot of the sell by marketing is getting a misapplied to cows and guys are trading out their cows maybe a little bit too often in my opinion. Okay. And I only say that because I have more of a perspective, you know, of a, of a cow calf production type system and that, that's what i'm thinking of somebody's got to raise the calves and you know everybody talks about well replacement heifers are expensive yes they are and there's two good ways to get or there's two ways to get good cows that i've always heard and it's pretty much the only two ways i've ever heard of to get good cows is you got to go buy the ranch they're standing on or you got to make your own and making your own is generally keeping replacements and and trying to grow your own cows and I can see where a lot of guys get caught up that, you know, yes, heifer development costs can be a pretty, pretty solid line item and carrying that, you know, that heifer for two years before she's productive. I get that that's a big cost. In a lot of cases, it makes sense to let somebody else raise that animal if you're doing a pure stalker operation. But if you're trying to make good cows, I think you got to kind of start with a calf. And where I'm getting at is, you know, the sell by, I feel encourages people to trade out cows you know on the depreciation curve when they're you know five six years old and i think that me i think what that's doing is we're putting a lot of our older more productive cows you know back into the commodity system where they can trade around again and we're never really truly letting those cows express their good genetics over you know over a course of several years You, you said a lot there. I mean, that's that's a lot to unpack. And I'm not going to disagree with anything you said in there. Um, first, I want to touch kind of like on what you said. You know, when these cows get to be five years old, you know, we're trying to mitigate that depreciation expense. And on my side of the coin now where I teach these schools and, you know, I write the, the uh, Market Intel blog on Beef's website, I spend a lot of time on the week during the week on the phone, you know, producers calling me. And based off what the feedback I get from those calls, I feel like we've pushed this capture the appreciation, deflect the depreciation too hard. 
And, you know, you're probably familiar with the five-year-old and out program. And if you read my Intel blog that I wrote last week, or was it 25th of August or something like that, I apologized. I deeply regret writing a blog years ago about the five-year-old and out program. It, at the time, it looked like a really great program. But then we went into this drought and our female market here, Nebraska, Kansas, Missouri, you know, even like Western Iowa, it changed dramatically. A first trimester red heifer is worth two to $500 less than a seven weight open heifer right now. Well, you're not capturing any appreciation value and you got a lot of money wrapped up in her, you know, just like what you said. Now, even though we're getting close to corn stocks and, and there's getting the, to be demand for those first calf heifers and we're able to sell them for, you know, maybe a little over $2,000 now, there's still a heck of a buy compared to other females. Part of what I think is happening and what's driving a lot of the appreciation value in these younger cows is we're seeing producers getting older and they don't want to deal with first calf heifer problems. So we see that second, third calven female, she's kind of the queen bee. She's the most overvalued. And then after, you know, like, well, like right now, they don't lose much value between that three-year-old to that broken mouth cow, they're just not losing a whole lot of value. So we're not really deflecting any depreciation. That five-year-old now program fell flat on its face as, as the market adjusted for this drought. Now, as far as the good cows, there was a very interesting conversation in the uh, Kip Pharaoh's email discussion group last fall, and it was about the value of old cows. And some of these sell-by traders really tried to shut that conversation down. When she is overvalued, you sell her. I mean, that's what sell-by marketing is. Yeah. But the neat thing about what I do, Brian, is I've taken the time and I've sat down with people that have come through my marketing schools. They come in, they got questions. I mean, some of these guys are just meticulous record keepers. They will sit down, open up their books. I've got this many open heifers, this many bread heifers you know, all the way up to these 18 year old cows. And there's a neat deal in there that once that cow gets to be about eight to 10 years old, her fertility rate drops off 8%. So I'm sure you're familiar with Dave Pratt. You know, he wrote an article years ago that yep. you're gonna have roughly about a 16% fallout rate if you keep all these open heifers. You know, you're going to call them for being open, losing a calf, bad eye, bad udder, et cetera, et cetera. By the time those cows reach that age 10 and they're trying to breed back, you will have maybe 17 of those because you're going to lose 16% a year. And then you bump that up for that 8% fallout rate between ages 8 and 10. So if you started with 100, by the time they get to that 11th, 12th calf, you got maybe 17 of them. But the neat thing is, and Meat Animal Research Center out of Clay Center, Nebraska has done this, and I've seen this in producers from Florida, Texas, New Mexico. One guy was in South Dakota. I forget where the other one was, but if she can breed back at age 12, she stays there. You know, I mean, 
they have just about as many 12-year-old cows as they do 16, 18-year-old cows. Longevity does not factor into sell-by marketing. But yes. the old paradigm of that 10-year calculator, by the time she makes, if she can breed back at age 12, that is like owning a mint. She is fully depreciated out. She's breeding back on time every year, popping that calf out. She knows what she's doing. I mean, she's making you some good money by that point. But, and, and this is what I tell people in my schools, because of that fallout rate, that is why I suggest trading. Because I don't want 17% odds that I'm going to have these cows at the end of the decade. I'm going to examine the relationships of the cows that I have in inventory and compare them to something else. And if I can replace buying somebody else's bred heifers or maybe keeping my own replacement heifers or, you know, sometimes stage of pregnancy has a lot to do with it. There's a guy went through my school a couple years ago and uh, he got, he, he did the same thing you just mentioned, Brian. Oh, the stalker deal. That's the place to be. That's the turnover, the cash flow. And, but he's, he sees himself as a cow calf guy. He tried the stalkers. He made some money. He liked it. He bought some bred cows on the summer slump. He calved them out. He sold them. I don't know, like three months later, $700 value capture. He sold half of those pairs and the half that he sold paid for the half that he kept. And he's like, yep, we can do this trading cows. That's what he likes to do. So he might calve twice a year now. He'll, he'll buy some breads, calve them, sell them as pairs replaced with some other breads it sounds like a lot of work but you know if you're gonna if you're gonna run from the work you might as well hide from the mud that's one thing that i say a lot of times and and this dude's loving it and and really brian there's better value margins to be captured earning these cows marketing these females than there is on the stalkers and for the people that are cow calf guys that don't want to spend you know a lot of time in a sale barn that's perfect because the cow deal is intrinsically slower because it takes her nine months to have a calf and you got the postpartum interval the, the relationship values between cows has adjusted for that time period of you know nine months to calve and postpartum you do them trades twice a year you can make some pretty decent money Yeah, I could see that. But I'm also, you know, from listening to, to Uncle Wally, I, Wally Olson, I call him Uncle Wally because I've only known him for, you know, 25, 30 something years. He likes, uh, I'm always, I've been under the impression that twice a year is not enough. It's not enough volume to really, really be in the thick of sell by and be and understanding the numbers. If if you're capturing three hundred dollar per head margins, it's not. Um, but if you're like, if you're going to take advantage of stage of pregnancy pairs versus breads and those kind of things, uh, you know, I was looking at some market reports. Well, I watched the sale here Saturday night, and you know there were some thousand dollar value captures, and you didn't have to trade quality of cow. You were just trading basically calving periods fall calvers to spring calvers. Right now, there's no demand for spring calving females coming through a sale water. But 
when you have cows that are going to calve here within the next 30, 45 days, they are a hot ticket all of a sudden. So you can sell some of these. Uh, well, they had some summer pairs, you know, two, 300 pound calves sold really well. Some of these bred cows that are going to calve here next month sold very well. But those first trimester cows didn't sell worth a hoop. There's a really good margin right there. And really, Brian, if you're somebody like me, if I can sell this cow before she calves, buy another bred cow, sell her, say, in January before she calves, I can trade breeding stock, never cattle. Right. And that's the way I like to do it. I, I was sitting here kind of kind of trying to work through that in my head of, of you know, why shortbred cows aren't very valuable in late and late bred cow and I'm getting terms screwed up and somebody's gonna yell at me. The first trimester cows aren't near as valuable as the third trimester cows right now. Do you see that as guys wanting to get that calf on the ground while the weather's still decent? And you know, and then overwinter that calf that that's more valuable operation and they don't want to, and they don't want to try to feed the cow over winter while she's growing a calf. I, I don't know. It, There's, it's the an more, interesting thing. The more I oh, talk, sorry. the less sense it started to make to myself. <laughs> no, it's, uh, I feel like I've learned more teaching the schools and listening to other producers questions. And when I sit in these sale barns, I, you know, Everybody knows who I am. You know, I write the blog. People want to pick my brain. And I, you know, and, and they're never afraid to share their thoughts. And I don't think that people really take these things into consideration, but sub, I mean, consciously. But on the subconscious side, if I buy this cow now in August, and she's not going to calve until January, possibly March, I got to feed her a long time. And then there's also the time value. If I buy this female now and she calves right away, I might be able to sell her back as a pair in a couple months from now. Or, you know, I've got this calf on the ground and he's growing. And of course, you know, them fall calves, they're always a hot ticket when the grass fever guys show up next spring. You know, so I think a lot of those things factor in um, and and it can be something I shouldn't say this is silly. But how the tide turns to me is silly in December, seven and a half percent interest was too much. I mean, that stopped bread heifers in a sale barn, 2000 bucks, the bidding stopped. You turn the calendar over to January, we blew right past $2,000. All of a sudden, 7.5% interest didn't mean squat anymore. It, I mean, it's just funny how those things change. Yeah. And they'll change very quickly. Uh, one thing I've done since I started teaching the schools is I use current real prices. I mean, I don't look at weighted, I don't take prices off weighted averages. I write down actual drafts, actual weights, you know, those kinds of things. And I've left the slides of these cow trades. How, how do I want to explain this? The people that have been to the school know what I'm trying to say, but I've got a slide where 
here's this cow, her age, her stage of pregnancy, here's her intrinsic value, and here's the value, here's what she actually sold for. And if she sells over her intrinsic value, I put that there's a there's a dollars per head difference, and I put that in green numbers. If her actual value is below her intrinsic value, I put that dollars per head difference in red. And we can go from November to like if I teach a school in December, I will be using those Thanksgiving sale prices in that December school. Then if I turn around and I teach another school, say in April, you can look back at that November slide to the March slide and those valuations will fluctuate. You will see gaps widen out, narrow. And what's interesting is you will see a cow that's sold $1,000 over intrinsic value, and you see all these other cows that sold for hundreds of dollars over their intrinsic value, it was raining. We got into this drought situation, but all of a sudden you saw those, those numbers go red or the margins really squished where maybe they were only selling a couple hundred dollars over their intrinsic value. And it's like, yeah, guys were worried about feed and drought situation and are we going to have corn stocks? You know, I mean, that's kind of a Nebraska thing. You guys do it down there too. But corn stocks will have a big, big impact on the value of these cows. And one of the reasons I think that we're seeing a boost right now is we're getting close, but people know what their feed storage situation is. There are big piles of silage on the ground. Well, when you got big piles of silage, oh, I can afford to feed cows now. And we're seeing that price boost, I think, as a result of that stored feed. Are there operations that wait until they, they know how much silage they've got before they go finish stocking up for the, you know, for the next cycle? Like, I, uh, yeah. And, you know, and you'll see that summer slump. Oh, we're busy making hay. We're busy doing this. Then you get into this time of year and you chop some silage. Now we know what we got as far as feed. And, you know, I kind of always, a, a little bit of humor, a little sarcasm here, Brian, but then it's like these farmers, because uh, I say farmers being in Nebraska, <laughs> oh, I have all this feed, I should go to town and buy some chores. And and that's what they do. Buy some more chores. Never heard it said that way, but it, it totally fits. That's, that's, I'm being a little bit facetious, but I try to emphasize that point that way, you know. Uh, farmer feeders, you know, they want bulletproof, winged out, black-hided cattle. And when that combine is power washed and put back in the shed, the bins are full. Let's go buy some chores. So a good sell-by trader will buy those ball and calves at the start of fall run, wean them, vaccinate them. And yep, when the combine starts, all of a sudden, those calves that we have in inventory become overvalued rather quickly here. Okay. I mean, I, I can see how all that works and I never thought about it like that. And you know, I, I do want to say, God bless the farmer feeders. We need more of them. Just quit being so picky about what you're looking for. <laughs> oh, you know, uh, and I'm sure you've heard this before, but when you listen to market reports on the radio and they're giving fat cattle prices and this and that, and they say all eyes on the North, that's what they're waiting on. What are those farmer feeders going to do? And it is those those pesky little three, 500 head feed yards, you know, they're kind of holding the line. 
you know, that would be a big pain in the rear end for a Packer buyer. I want to say those three and 500 head farmer feeder buyers in the north, I think there's certain times of the year that they keep the Packer buyers honest and they keep the feedlot. Absolutely. Absolutely. And that's one thing we have in Nebraska that I don't think you see a lot of in other states. But, um, you know, the other thing, when I was involved with the NCBA, and I'm not a member, so don't anymore. Don't hold that against me, anybody. I wouldn't if but, you um, What's that? I wouldn't if you were. Oh, well, some people do. I'm, I'm, I'm not a member of RCAF. I'm not a joiner. But anyway, um, the guys from Texas would always brag about their cattle numbers. And I would always like, you you ain't got squat on our state because we got so many of these little farmer feeders that don't have to report. We have way more cattle in Nebraska than y'all do. You know, it's just always one of those deals. You know, we're always measuring to see who's really bigger. Never like those kind of contests because they usually end up losing. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> you know, I, I I love to pick on them guys from Texas. They, they, they like to pick on me too. So it's all, it's all fun and games. Well, you got to keep the Texas boys honest. If not, they get kind of, I uh, don't want to say that some can have an ego, but you know, everything is bigger in Texas. Yeah. So <clears throat> how in the last year we've watched interest rates. I mean, a year ago we were looking at, you know, it cost three, maybe 4% for, for money. I mean, it was still pretty reasonable a year ago. And what we saw in the first part of the year is interest rates skyrocket. You mentioned it earlier that interest rates went to eight, eight and a half, nine. How much pressure has that put on the market? When you factor in interest rate is an expense. It is the expense that is going to affect the relationship values between cattle. You know, like, how would I explain that differently? The higher your monthly cost on a cow is going to change the value of that cow to you. That's the intrinsic value. And so then that's going to affect how much value you are selling into the market. Because every time you sell an animal, you're selling value into the market. And on stockers, it is that cost that affects the relationship between different weights of animals and so that will tell you what you can and cannot buy. So when we bump that interest rate up, even if it's just four, five, six percent, it is going to swing the needle on some of these relationships between different classes of cattle. And uh, you know, there, there's an old guy. He he doesn't come around anymore. He's not he's not able to drive, but he's been through a lot in his lifetime and him and I would sit in these sales and visit and one day he made this comment to me he said Ferguson he goes if the cattle business was a battleground you'd have stripes from your wrist to your shoulder by now and me kind of being a smart ass I'm like what no stars no bars what what's a guy got to do and he said in your lifetime you have never seen high interest rates and just 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 repeating that to you right now Brian almost gives me goosebumps because I mean, he went through the farm crisis of the '80s. He he lived through all that. I haven't seen anything like that. I hope we don't. I, I I really hope we don't. Interest rates are scary enough as it is. If we go to, if we go back to the 1980s interest rates, it's it's going to get way worse. 
I did hear something uh, the other day. I can't remember if it was in a in a new book that I was reading or listening to, or if it was on a on a podcast. If they they changed the government, they the government changed the formula that they used to calculate inflation, and they're saying, "Oh, inflation's only seven percent. It's only seven and a half percent." hold up let's like compare apples to apples and not apples to potatoes okay what was it in the 80s let's use the 80s way of figuring it to tell you to tell us what it is today and they don't like doing that because when they do that real inflation is like 15 to 17 percent and money costs eight to eight and a half percent it's going to have some real serious effects on the economy and yeah, we're we're fortunate that we didn't have to live through the 80s. My dad did. And he didn't, you know, he didn't take on any risk at, you know, 18%. And I thank him for that every day right now. Um I it's a it's a very strange time to be in agriculture. There's so many forces working on us. We're trying to fight against fake meat, environmental activists wanting to be upset about rainforest destruction in Brazil and blaming the Iowa cattle farmers for that. Like, guys, we're barking up the wrong tree. You know, Industry-wide, we've got some problems. But when you get down to the specific level, you know, everybody's just trying to fight to survive on the individual level. And I think it's going to be a, a, a much more interesting fight over the next couple of years with high interests and, and high inflation and high cost of money. What, what are your thoughts? Well, when you're, no, I'm, I'm just, I'm, again, you, you kind of, I, I like how you go on these rants and, and there again, you, I mean, you, there, there, you said a lot right there. Um, I'm going to put, trying to think of a way to say this that kind of sinks into people's head. Okay. Bob Barker passed away this week. Yes. The, the old host from Price is Right. So uh, on Pluto TV, they have the old series of prices right during the Barker era. And just for giggles, I pulled that up and, you know, and my daughter's sitting there, you know, she's kind of trying to guess the prices of things. And my wife and I are sitting there shaking my head. Like there is no way we're going to accurately guess the price of any of these items. Since COVID now, now hold the Bob Barker thought for a second since COVID we were allowed to have one shopper in a store. So I have not been in our local Walmart for the last three years. And yesterday I walked in the Walmart because, you know, you sent an email that I needed earphones for this podcast. <laughs> and I'm walking around in that store and I'm going, oh my gosh, this is what things cost in here now. So think about from the Bob Barker era, what I remembered from say 2019, 2020 to what those same items cost today in 2023, this inflation deal is very real. And it is, it's, I mean, it's big. So yeah, the inflation is going to have a lot to do with it. Um, last spring when I was doing the marketing schools, we had $8 corn going into the feed bunks. We had $5 diesel. And people knew their cost of gain at that time. If you ask somebody, what's your cost of gain? They knew. 
Now we've got these higher cattle prices. You ask somebody, what's your cost gain? Oh, I think it's about this. Yeah, the word about has been put back in there. These high cattle prices are given that false sense of security. But the one thing I would talk about in those schools is we look at the value of, or the price of diesel, you know, price of corn, and we think, oh, the price of those things has gone up. No, the power of your dollar has gone down. And I think a lot of times people in agriculture, we understand that because we understand, you know, we, we know currencies trade against each other. We deal in commodities and you see how the strength of a dollar will affect the value of a commodity. I mean, we live through that every day. The average consumer, I don't think, looks at it that way. Oh, but no, they look at the price of milk. They look at the price of their Doritos and their Starbucks. They they don't look at like the I don't think they look at the overall big picture at all. I think they just look at, you know, look at a few numbers a month and be like, oh, well, it was a little more expensive. Maybe we better cut this other thing out. I who I think we we're talking about Journal American Public and what they look at, what they're spending. I seems like most of them don't care and aren't paying attention. As long as I can afford the payments, I'm good. Yeah. I mean, I, I see so much of that. Um, I bought a new pickup. It's a 2022. So I bought it in 21, ordered it in 21. And I could buy that new. The reason I bought a new pickup is I could buy the new one cheaper than I could buy used ones just because I was willing to wait for the chips to cut. You know, remember when they needed the. Yeah, the yeah. computer chips or whatever to come in. So I was willing to wait. But um, I wanted them to price the pickup. What is it going to cost me out the door? I'm writing you a check. They could not speak in that language. They could tell me, oh, your payments will be this. No, I don't want to know what the payments are. I'm writing you a check. What's it going to cost going out the door? Like we had, we had a real communication barrier there. You're the guy they hate because... And oh, speaking broadly, you know, of, and this like includes John Deere, Ford, Chevy, everybody. These companies aren't making money on building the tractor or the car. They don't make money building it. They don't make money selling it. They make their money by financing it to you. And they make their money in the parts and service department. Yes, John Deere. I'm looking at you directly. <laughs> But they make, they make a lot of money in parts and service, and they make their money financing it. And when, when a guy walks in with a suitcase of cash or with a big enough checkbook to write a check for that, that's it doesn't compute. Because I guarantee 99% of the rest of the people that walk through that door are, are not ready to buy, and they're talked into it into a pretty sweet financing deal that ends up being real great for the dealership. Oh yeah, that's that's a trick they always use on me. Oh, we'll sign you up for this. We'll give you this great financing, blah blah blah. If you want to pay it off, just pay it off in thirty days. But I just pay it off now. I mean, let's skip all that. So, a lot of the times when you know when I trade my wife's pickup, or you know if I trade one of mine, like well, I'll take my wife's pickup for example. We're always we're always. When, when we trade her, she's got an F-150, you know, it's a great mom car. 
I will buy that one that's been sitting on their lot for quite a while, that stale inventory. And it's like, yeah, then you can walk in there and say, I'll just give you a pile of cash at this trade and take that truck off your hands. And and, and they're willing to do it. Is it at that point, then it's they're increasing their turnover. They're getting rid of that stale inventory, you know, and then they're getting into another trade that they can turn around and resell. Um, the other times I've had good luck dealing with dealers is if the auto manufacturer gives them an incentive. You move so many units, you get this kickback. That's when the cash option will really work. Now, you've mentioned John Deere, and you said I'm, I'm, I'm looking at you directly. I, I do have to compliment you. That reminded me, I can't remember which podcast it was on. You had the best one-liner on a podcast yet this year when you said John Deere exists to farm the farmers. You put all of our pain out there in one line, and you did it in a G-rated version, which I would not have been able to do myself. So, yeah, I got to applaud you for that one, Brian. Well, thanks. Thanks. And I just, every time an envelope comes from John Deere Financial, I just, it hurts. It's painful. And I think of what it represents and how much, you know, what my uptime is on that machine. And it just frustrates me to no end and to try to communicate with them. I mean, the guys in the shop are great. The technician's great. Yeah. Service manager's great. They're great. I mean, but they're just there to punch a clock. So I had, uh, I actually had somebody from John Deere reach out to me. I don't know if it was a personal email or what, but the guy, you know, it kind of sounded like, Hey, we want to know your thoughts. We want to know your thoughts. How do you like your gator? Stand by. I sent the guy a three page letter. Like I, and I got, I had all my service histories, all my, all my bills out. And I kind of went through over three pages to this guy of everything I've been through with those, with those two John Deere gator machines that I have and the repairs, how much time they've spent in the shop and how much it's cost me out of warranty. You think that guy responded? Three pages was probably a little too much for his attention span. Probably, but that's how that it's not like I wanted to send him three pages of bitching him out. Like that's just what it was of this, you know, of the history of these machines and what problems we've had with them. Well, I, I should probably quit talking about how bad I, about, what kind of machines those gators are because i need to get rid of them and get something else if i want anybody that listens to this podcast to buy them i better shut up <laughs> kind of tainting my uh pool that i'm going to be selling in i guess so you you touched on something earlier we were talking about the price of diesel and the price of feed and how that relates to the price of feed and i know that has an effect on the cattle market but is that something that's one of those, it almost seems like that's an unseen, that not an unseen force, but that's a force that's going to be really hard to figure out its effect. And by that, I mean, you know, if, if fuel is high during one part of the year, that can affect, you know, how much it costs to plant and that can affect a decision. Or if it's, you know, high during harvest, maybe that affects what guys are going to chop or, or combine. I don't know. It does have you found any correlation in there? Yeah. Um, you, well, like right now, we're, this is a real good example of it. You know, 
I, I would say the fat cattle market has gotten a little stale. You know, feeder cattle prices keep creeping up, but fat cattle aren't doing a whole lot. The price of corn has gone down. I I didn't look at it yet this morning, but on Friday it was five oh four going into the feed mill. That's I mean that drops that drops a nickel. All of a sudden, the price of corn has a fuller in front of it. And of course, you know, yep, that looks like cheap corn compared to what we had, you know, a year and a half ago. And that gets cattle feeders and buyers feeling a little cocky. Oh, now I've got cheap gain. I don't know what cheap gain is. Everything costs money. But, hey, I can get these cattle bought at this price and feed them for this. You know, they run their break-evens. And some of these guys are sitting there with break-evens on cattle that are going to be over two bucks. Yeah. yeah. A lot, they're a lot more optimistic than I am. They must now, here's be those guys that can carry them at two bucks a day, they must be using a different spreadsheet. No, their break even is going to be two dollars. Like those cattle weighing fifteen hundred pounds got to bring over two dollars live bid. That's the only way they get any of that money back. It's if you calculate the break even. But see, now that's the neat thing about sell buy, is when you sell an animal, the cost is attached to that animal, and use that cost to determine what you can spend for a replacement animal. So really, cash sell by marketing is a real-time cash flow reckoning. So you see those price relationships right now. To me, that's the neat thing about sell by marketing. It tells you what you can and cannot do today in order to prosper yourself. You know, there's none of this manic roller coaster of hoping that, you know, the market's going to go up high enough to bail me out. And if it does, you feel like the smartest guy in the world. And if it doesn't, well, it's the Packers' fault. It's, you know, whoever it is that you want to blame. You know, you've heard the laundry list of of excuses over the years. But I I see this with guys in sale barns all the time. If they're losing money, it's almost like they're bragging. You know, and and a guy will get a phone, oh, I just sold these fats for this price. And, well, what's your return on the gain on them? They just look at me blank stare. Like, what did you just say? (laughs) <laughs> I have no idea how you can make money in this business if you don't know how to calculate a return on the game. But they just buy the next one and, oh, we'll hedge them and we'll do this and da 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 and hope it works. Yeah, I've never understood trying to trying to do that hedging and forward marketing and, and playing the futures board. It seems like anybody that I know playing in that, like trying to play on that, system you're a really really small fish in a really big pond with a lot of really vicious predators we can just look back to the mf global meltdown how many people there got burned uh what was that we had not familiar with uh what was that that was the john corzine deal and Oh, gosh, I probably shouldn't have brought that up because my memory's starting to fade a little bit now. But they didn't have the money to back a lot of their accounts. And there is money set aside in Chicago to keep those accounts liquid. And there was not enough of that reserve money to cover the contracts that MF Global had. And so if you were using MF Global as your clearinghouse, your account got froze. But the market didn't stop. 
your account was froze. So if you had a, you know, if you had a position in the market and you wanted to exercise your contract, you could not. And we felt that effect here. There were two co-ops, you know, you got your two big co-ops and they're battling out for dominance. And it was kind of nice having a little bit of competition. One of those co-ops was using MF Global as their clearinghouse. Their contracts got froze. Next thing you know, they're bought out by the other co-op. Now we have one big mega co-op. You know, and you you want to talk about having your margins fixed. Oh, yeah, price of corn goes up. Boy, they're charging you a lot for anhydrous that fall. You know, they kind of got a monopoly on it all here. And it's all because of that MF Global meltdown. Um, the neat thing about sell-by marketing, if somebody tripped a breaker in Chicago today and that board didn't open, I wouldn't know it. I don't look at the board. I don't pay any attention to it. Now, what I will know is I will know what these cattle brought in the sawdust today. You know, our local sale here in Beatrice sells on Mondays, Joplin selling now, Oklahoma City. I mean, there's sales all over the country now. And later this afternoon, this evening, I'll look at those mark reports. You know, sometimes when I eat lunch, I sit here on the laptop. I watch them sell cattle. You know, you got DB Auction, Cattle USA, LMA's website. I mean, we've got such great, wonderful tools. I mean, I will sit, I will sit in the tractor when I'm bailing hay sometimes and just you know, I've got the wireless earbuds, and I'll just sit and turn on an auction and just listen to them sell cattle. Of course, if they don't, if they don't announce the weights, I, I typically don't. You know, I'm just <laughs> listening to the bid drive. But you know, some of them guys will tell you the weight before they start selling them, and then yeah, well, as I'm sitting here bailing, hey, I can listen to that. Oh, I can start to see the price relationships developing at that sale. But that just comes from you know doing hundreds of thousands of cattle squares over the years that it, it, it just kind of becomes subconscious, but I don't know what kind of, I, I guess I'm kind of getting off topic maybe there a little bit, Brian, but that's okay. If that's but, you know, to be on knowing because yeah, you were talking, we were talking about the cost. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it, it's gonna, it's gonna affect those relationships. It's gonna, it's gonna affect a lot of things. Um, I, I uploaded one of those. I, I, I don't really see myself as a content creator and I don't really get try to get too wrapped up in doing this. But one day I, I uh, earlier this year, I shot one of those reels, threw it up on the Mr. Cattlemaster Facebook page. And my daughter had just bought replacement calves and she's putting square bales in the bunk, cutting the strings off of them. And in that video, I gave her a hard time. I'm like, yeah, you made all this money buying these replacement calves. Maybe you can pay that $10,000 feed bill you owe me. You know, and this little 12-year-old girl's like, that's a lot of money, Dad. And I'm like, that's what it costs. They eat a lot of feed. <laughs> you know, I mean, she was, she was a little freaked out. But then on the flip side of it, you know what the feeder market's done this year. To the moon. I mean, we, I, I had the numbers here the other day. I've got so many, I've got so many, over here on the right side, I've got stacks of papers with chicken scratches all over them. But I think we bought her calves in the springtime. They were around $910 a head. And we sold 80% of her inventory last week or two weeks ago. And 
they brought 1650 and with a profit margin figured in she's got $200 a head figured in there or ex expense that's including the profit that is a heck of a value capture this little 12 year old girl walks out of that sale barn with a check that is for more money than her school teachers are going to make all year and it's just because the cattle market went up that much this summer. Of course, you know what's going to happen. What the market giveth, the market will take away. And we're going to hit that downslide. I'm, I, I guess I shouldn't say I'm going to guarantee it or I'm certain of it. Maybe we're at the new plateau. Maybe we are. But that old Gordon Hazard quote that we all like to throw around, you can't throw a stone so high that it won't come down. Yes. So I don't think we've seen the top yet, and I'm not sure that we're even like flirting with the top. Maybe we are heading, maybe we're like just a half a step under a plateau. Could keep going to the moon too. The question is, where's the next floor going to be? Is it going to be at or above the previous floor? Or is it going to be so far below that we're all caught off guard? That's, you know, we heard that in 2014-15. Oh, this is the new plateau. You'll never see another broke day again, right? Yeah. And I remember sitting in Joplin I think I want to say it was probably about in October and I was buying some of these six weight feeder bulls and I was buying them for under a dollar. I was buying them for about 95, 96 cents. And, and, uh, I know Bailey more and, and I bought some of these feeder bulls and Bailey looks at me and goes, you remember what I used to call a one in front of that? And I'm like, I remember what you used to call it two in front of that. <laughs> you know, we had $2 and some odd cent bulls just 16 months earlier. Yeah. But then here we are, you know, almost a year and a half later, and they're selling for under a buck. Did you feel like you were the only two guys that remembered when they were, you know, a dollar? Oh, no, everybody remembered it. I mean, it, the, the, the sting was I, – I remember there were some uh, – because that was in October – Two months later in December, it got so bad, some of the big corporate yards just froze up and they would not buy cattle. They were losing so much money a day. They just locked up. And, of course, then when them guys quit buying cattle, then you really felt it. Then there's and a then they decided, oh, January, it's a new year. Let's buy some cattle. And, oh, it was great having them guys back in the market. I mean, that deal was just the, the pain and and – you know, I, I still talk to guys today will call me and they're still talking about the market crash 2008, nine, you know, when the housing bubble burst. I mean, they're still carrying that pain around with them. But there again, you know, I'm going to do my little plug here, Brian, and my little segue, you know, for that sell by trader, that real time cash flow reckonings, I was having a ton of fun. I mean, I was making some great margins. The cash flow was outstanding, you know, and of course, that's a good time to expand. You know, it seems like, and this will kind of go back to your cow-calf deal. When do we always typically expand the cow herd? When these prices are high. You know, 
we were not typically always keeping females at you know heifers back at the bottom of the market we start keeping them back at the high end of the market typically yeah typically so and and uh, this time might this time around might be a little different i mean this drought has affected so many people in different areas i I've, the drought we're experiencing here this year is unlike any I've ever been to. I mean, this has been a, a way different year. And I, I thought after 2012, I kind of took a sigh of relief. But, man, we ain't going to see this again for a while. Now, here we are, you know, 11 years later, it's worse. You know, so. There'll be another one in about, you know, seven to ten more years, Doug. You're not wrong. <laughs> <laughs> just, just saying. It, it does seem like it goes on those ten-year cycles. You know, and and uh, I remember, I can't remember what year it was, but I do remember Ann Barnhart went on one of her famous rants about, you know, you can't even survive a 10-year cyclical drought. Yeah, it kind of seems to come around about that often. Some just are a little worse than others. Yep. And this one hasn't, that this year hasn't been horrible for me my worst year was last year and then trying to get through the, through the dormant season after two years of, of drought. I mean, I started destocking in 21 destock, you know, pulled more numbers out for 22 came in light again this year. Cause you know, I'm making those decisions and I kept kicking the can down the road and I ended up not making a stocking decision until almost the first part of may which is generally when the trucks would be showing up because i already made the decision in you know march or april on a, on how many i'm going to take and how many i'm going to graze and we just didn't have any moisture in april and may and i just kept kicking that can down the road and i made a call in may thinking i might have to quit in july and destock everything in july like that that's how that's how bad it was here and then it started raining the first of june and it really didn't stop <laughs> we've had since the first of June, we've had plenty of rainfall. The amount of grass we grew is just absolutely phenomenal. Um, the little blue stem, the side oats is waist high. I mean, normally it's, you know, ab- just above the knee or mid thigh. This year it's waist high. The big blue stem, most of that is well over six feet tall. I mean, six and a half, seven feet tall, big blue stem. And there's more big blue stem on the ranch right now than I have ever seen in my life. There's more of it than dad has ever seen since he's been here and he's been on this place since 85. It's, it's phenomenal. Now I'm going to ask you a question right there, Brian. I'm, I'm going to interject. Um, when I, when I think of you, I think of regenerative agriculture. I accept and that. You just said, you just said that we have, more blue stem than my dad has ever seen. Rain is a factor. How much do you think grazing management is a factor? I think quite a bit. Um, so there's the place where I strip grazed uh, my bull pasture. It's been resting most of this year. I uh, strip grazed two years in a row. And then just on the other side of a county road, I've got some old farm. I've got, we call them farm fields. And dad planted those back to grass in 85, 86. And he came back in the late nineties and, and put like a four wildflower mix 
in there. A little farther north, there's some other ground, you know, on that same west side that wasn't farmed. So it's got sagebrush and it's it's more native. It's, you know, has the natural native component. It wasn't until this year that we really saw a lot of blue stem coming up in those farm fields. Over the last few years, they've been getting better and better and better. Don't get me wrong. I mean, we've been, you know, the tall grass has been creeping to the short spots where, you know, there's buffalo, Bermuda, that, you know, the short grass is where it's traditionally overgrazed. Um, but yeah, over the last, probably the last 10 years, it's just been, you know, trying to get more of the side oats, more of the little blue and getting that filled in. And, you know, it's, I was starting to see some Indian grass probably along 17, 18, 19 after the big wildfire. I started to see some Indian grass down there. Oh, yeah. Yep. But it's just in the last, just this year, the big blue down there is just, all of a sudden, it's just decided it wants to express itself. And I don't know why, but I'm also not going to complain about it. I wish I could figure it out. And maybe it's just taken, maybe it's just taken this long to break up enough of the plow pan that those big, that the big blue stem grass can actually put down deep enough roots to express itself and to get real healthy. Just one theory anyway. Well, that's and the reason I asked is I've changed my grazing management. Um, I did rotational grazing for the first time in 2012. Okay. And, and, and I use that term loosely, but you know, that, that was the first year I really just finally went in up to my balls and pigtails of polywire. And and I have seen some very dramatic changes during that time. So that's when you when you mentioned the increase in blue stem, I thought, oh, there's probably something to this. And the reason I bring that up, and I wanted to question you about it, you know, is is feed inventory is our base. I mean, we got to have feed inventory for you know if we're going to have these animals. And one thing I hear a lot of times around here. People drive by my pastures and they give me or, well, no, they don't say it to me. They'll say it to my wife, maybe my folks. Oh, look at all that grass that Doug's been wasted out there. Well, you know, it takes grass to grow grass. And, you know, we're in this drought. People are out of grass. They're feeding bales. I'm still grazing. You know, I did have to reduce the number of animals this year, you know, to match the growing conditions a little bit. But it's like, you could put pigtails and polywires up yourself and see some improvements. And here's the big pushback I always get, Brian. It makes me chuckle. Oh, you know how long that would take? Yes, I know how long it would take. You see <laughs> the you see the spools hanging on my perimeter fence. And I also know how long it takes to fill a mixer wagon and feed a pen of cattle. Believe me, you got a lot less time and labor wrapped up in pigtail wires and spools. Just I'm just putting that out there for you, Brian. Yeah, well, I, uh, well, Doug, I just don't have time to move my cattle every day. I just don't have time to go build. They get trained. Eat a fence. I just I don't have time. You know, <laughs> I have. I don't recognize my life some days, Brian. But this this crop duster was flying over one of my pastures where I was rotating calves one day. And I get the calves moved to the next paddock, and about an hour later, I get a phone call from him. And he's like, that was real interesting. Yep, I get to watch this Mr. Cattlemaster guy. I'm going to see if he's really as good as, you know, he's made out to be. And I do the zigzag pattern. You know, I do the 
the T to the gate thing. I get the calves lined out. They're going. And these calves, they're in all full disclosure, they're trained. They know that, okay, somewhere over in the direction I pointed them, the spool is rolled back. We're going to fresh grass. And they just went that way. Once I got them lined out and they're going that way, I turned the floor around and, and I was over in the corner of the cell. And I started driving my floor around in circles. And he goes, what were you doing? I was just picking up shed antlers. <laughs> they, they mow all the grass off. It makes it a lot easier to find all the shed antlers. And, you know, so I'm kind of, the calves move themselves. I mean, once you kind of say, hey, today's moving day, you can train them. It is not hard. And I I have bought more pigtails and spools than I need. So I can set cells up ahead of time. So I don't have to put, I don't have to build fence on moving day. The fence is already there on a day when I have some time on my hands. So on the day that I need to move them, you just buzz out there on the four-wheeler or a horse, you roll the spool back, you move the cattle, you hook the spool back up, you're gone. You know, it works really slick and quick, you know, as long as I don't have to move the water tank. You know, when you got to move water tanks and K-lines, that, that's going to involve a little bit of time. But there again, that still ain't hard. Yep. Yep. I'm I'm with you. It just, it always blows my mind when somebody says, well, I don't have time to move cows every day. I don't have time to move cows every day. Do you have time to go check them every day? Do you go look at them every day? When I go move cows, it doesn't really take me a whole lot longer to move them than it does to get there. I mean, sometimes it takes 20, 25, 30 minutes to get back to the back corner of the ranch. Nine times out of 10, when I get there, they'll be standing at the gate. And if they're not standing at the gate, roll the window down and I scream, come on cows. And I hit my siren twice and, look at my phone for five minutes and look up and they're all standing around me and I can open a gate drive through and they'll follow me. It's pretty yeah. easy. But you touched on something that, uh, that I want to go back to. You talked okay. about feed inventory and we were talking about the context of standing grass and yeah, I, I get some of the same comments, you know, last fall, Last fall, a client was out riding around with me. He's like, well, you got plenty of grass. And I said, yeah, it looks like I've got plenty of grass. But it's also like, this is all I have. I don't have a yard full of hay. I don't have a big checkbook. I can't call the hay man in. I can't call the hay guy in March and say, hey, I need an emergency two loads of hay because I ran out of grass. Like, I have to plan this to where this grass has to last every animal that's grazing on this ranch from now until green grass. So all this grass, yeah, it's eventually going to get used. It might not be till March. So just, you know, just slow your roll because you got to leave residual to grow something for next year. And I got to leave it where they can get to it. And, and I think that, a lot of operator, conventional side operators, they don't see any value in winter grazing. And they def and it's hard for them to see value in standing forage. And it's hard for them to, to, to estimate standing forage. I mean, they might not know the difference between a pasture that's making 1,500 pounds the acre and a pasture that's making 4,500 pounds the acre. Much less how to manage that. Much less what that means, you know, for a guy like you or me that is out, you know, that does polywire, that moves a lot. We understand what that feed inventory looks like in the pasture. We understand how to use it. 
A guy's whole paradigm is tillage and hay. Probably not so much. So it's maybe that's an unfair advantage. And, you know, again, that kind of, I, I guess I can tie that into sell by marketing is if you're doing a lot of sell by marketing, you've got to know what your feed inventory is. You got to know how many animals you can carry for how long. It's no different than knowing how many tons of silage you got in the bunk or how many bushels you got in the bin, right? Got to know how many pounds of acre you have in the pasture. Yeah. And you kind of touched on something. I bring this up in the marketing schools. What is the value of grass? And, you know, there's, we have a lot of discussion sometimes in the schools. And is it so much an acre? Is it so much a day? Is it worth so much pound a gain? You know, those kind of things worth so much a month. There's a lot of discussion and there's a lot of different ways to do it, but nobody ever agrees. But the one thing we all agree on is if we mow it and we put some net wrap around the outside of it, now we know what it's worth. And the last two schools that I've done, there have been some interesting comments come up that I haven't heard before. There was one guy from Kansas. I think the other one was from, I forget where he was from, but they told me that their hunting leases were worth more than what they were getting paid to graze cattle. Uh, one guy was doing hunts for upland birds. The other one was white-tailed deer. You know, so like, we kind of got to leave some of this grass for the hunters. That one was a first for me. The school that we just wrapped up here not too long ago in Oklahoma City, carbon credits came up. And I'm just going to just tell you right now, Brian, before you do any follow-up questions, I don't know anything about carbon credits. I, I've read a little bit about it. I'm confused. It's... And that's fair. Okay. I, I think there's a lot of confusing things out there. I think there's a lot of carbon companies out there. Um, I mean, I, I could give you a grassroots sales pitch, but I don't think you want it right now. And I don't think the listeners really want it right now. Um, it, it's a complicated market and it's an emerging market. It's kind of a wild west type gold rush right now. Um, I wanted to get in and I wanted to at least get a little piece of it rather than getting left out. So yeah, car carbon contracts, hunting other ways to make money on your land. So, you know, that, that, that ranching for profit school that we've all been to, they like to talk about how to concessionize and find other enterprises. And Hunting, hunting for some guys is a big deal. I've never really been able to recapture. I've never been able to capture enough of what of, of hunting revenue to really get get me interested. I know several guys that make about half as much off hunting on their pastures just for deer as they do off cows, and then you start throwing in things like, okay, we're going to sell a couple quail hunts, and maybe we're going to sell a wild turkey hunt. Now you're starting to talk about something. Now you're really starting to talk about something that's bringing in as much as a cattle enterprise does. And I have a neighbor that does that. Like I, I actually think he probably his bread and butter is probably the deer, then the turkeys, then oil and gas, then the cows. And there's nothing wrong with that. 
So back to carbon. I think that carbon contracts are going to help keep a lot of people on the land because, you know, we're seeing land costs skyrocket out of, I mean, out of control in my area, there's, there's a piece of property that's pretty much only good for deer habitat. And it's only good for deer habitat because they've got about a half a dozen feeders on a 1500 acres and a couple of food plots. Like it, it's full of cedar trees and old rank grass. Like it's, it's not really, cows aren't really going in there and deer kind of go through it because it's on a creek. That property traded for close to $3,000 the acre. Like, and it hasn't had a cow on it in 15 years. It's just a hunting preserve. And, okay, I, I see that. That's a viable model. There, there's a property, um, there's a 700-acre property that's right down by where my house is. My I don't live on the ranch. It's about an eight-mile commute out. But there's a property that's catty corner from where I live. And this is the third time that it's traded since I've lived here in 12 years. And every time it goes up between 20 and 40% in price. It's about half farm ground. It's got a, it's got a creek, I'd say creek running through it. That's dry for better than half the year, most years. Um, but it's about half farm ground. And it's got a little bit of grass. Deer hunters just keep trading it back and forth. Like, the same guy, the same agent has sold it every time it's sold in the last 12 years. Like, I know who he is. I've got his card. And when I need to sell something, that's the guy I'm going to call. Because if he can sell that thing in four times in 12 years and make money every time doing it, that might be the guy I want to talk to. Yeah. So, you know, we have things like that that are, you know, a lot of land trading around foreign, I say foreign coastal elites bringing their money bringing their money in deer hunters from you know louisiana or florida bringing their big bucks in yeah land's cheap well it doesn't rain a whole lot here and summers kind of suck and winters kind of suck but they they bring their money in and they think that the the land is undervalued you know it's value is just a perception of, of what something's worth and it really doesn't have much of a real world thing. I mean, everybody determines what their own value for a thing is. So they come out here and they see the land as being undervalued. Whereas I'm looking at being as like, well, that's way overpriced. And they buy it for an investment, for an appreciating asset of the investment. And it just, it makes it harder for guys like me and guys like you to make a living when we've got to pay, you know, rent costs and taxes every year. You know, that's an interesting thing you said when you talk about outside money coming in. I got a friend of mine. He lives out in western Nebraska. He's north of Ogallala. And him and I were on the phone. He's looking at a couple places out there. I've put in some bids on some places here. And, of course, you know, we're talking about price per acre. And when we throw those dollar figures out, the land sounds cheap where he lives on his end of the state compared to my end of the state. But if you are going to base that off how many cows an acre will support or how many, you know, how many acres it takes to support a cow, that's, that's the correct way to say it. 
it's actually overvalued where he's at compared to here, even though the price per acre is higher here, you know, and that's, you know, we get, I'm trying to think of the rainfall chart, but I think our annual rainfall somewhere, I'm just going to say 15 inches more on my end of the state than his, you know, and of course you're looking at sand hills versus, you know, our soils here on the Eastern side of the state, you know, all those things factor in. So, I mean, it kind of comes back to how you, what you just said, how, what is your perception of it? When, when we look at it that way, it's like, well, yeah, I probably shouldn't be buying land in the sand hills. I should buy it closer to home. But I can also see it's like you look at the sand hills and the hunting and the seclusion. And I mean, there's so many other things that could add a lot of value for somebody, you know, to buy that land out there. Like, like you just said, you know, people coming in from the coast. I feel like it's harder, a lot harder now than it was just say, let's just say five years ago. It's harder now to make a living on livestock in the West, which anywhere West of the Mississippi or, or Highway 81 or Interstate 35 and wherever you want to draw that line. I mean, you get West of it and there's a lot less people. You get East of it and there's a lot more people and a lot more rain. So there's, there's definitely a line that cuts, cuts through the country. The farther West you go, it seems like things have, have gone upside down from everything that we learned growing up. Like land gets cheaper as you go west until you get to the front range and then then it gets real expensive. And it's, you touched on it, it's how many acres do we need to run a cow? Like, and th that to me is kind of a, that's that's one of my yardsticks. You go farther east, you need less acres to run a cow. So those acres are more valuable for cattle production, but it's not necessarily a linear relationship. And I think we've passed the point where even though things are quote cheaper in the West per acre, what you're paying for the productivity of the ground, it's not enough. You can get more productive ground. You can get more production for less dollars going East than you can going West. And what that means is instead of buying a 10,000 acre spread out West to try to make a living on, I think the new paradigm is looking for 10 or 25 acres in the East to do something very diversified and very small on. You know, one neat thing, what I do is, you know, I talk to people from all over the country, just like you do. And these guys from Kentucky, you know, they'll call me and, you know, oh, here's what my cost of gain. And I'm like, no, no way it's that cheap. You know, and, and, and so I start poking and prodding, asking them more questions. Well, their grazing rent compared to Nebraska is so cheap. And I'm like, my God, why, like, why ain't y'all just rich? I mean, if you can graze cattle for that price, timber. The, the land in Kentucky, they're looking at it for timber. Oh, let's kick these cattle out there. They tromp and graze all this down. Then we can go in there and cut logs later. They're more interested in the income from the timber. But so, yeah, they're like, yeah, that's all the landlord wanted for me to kick these calves out and graze them. And boy, they've got a really cheap cost of gain. And I think that's a great opportunity if you can take advantage of that. Um, I remember something I, I read in Stockman Grass Farmer years ago. And I can't remember who wrote it. This might have been a Gordon Hazard thing. 
and he was talking about grazing uh, river levees up and down the Mississippi River oh, and yeah. in the southeast. And that that used to be a thing. That used to be how all the river levees were maintained. You know, Army Corps of Engineer property, public property, they'd bring in guys with cattle and sheep and goats to keep the levees grazed down and keep the tre trees clipped off of them. Now, I don't know how or why that practice went away, but I can imagine it was somebody that was pissy because they thought the other, they thought one of the guys grazing that was getting an unfair opportunity and they were mad that they weren't doing it and they owned a lawn care company and they said, no, we just, we need to go to mowing and spraying. So what used to be a profit center or revenue generator for governments by contracting with private people to come in and graze public property in the name of maintenance, right? They're paying for a service. You're paying, like you're going to pay me to do the maintenance on your levies. It shouldn't matter if I'm using a tractor and a mower and chemical or if I'm using cattle, sheep, and goats as long as I'm getting it done. One way costs money. The other way makes me money. It's probably one of those things that, you know, somebody got upset. They, they, weren't, they weren't able to, you know, feed that public trough. But I digress. The point is, is we took out so much, like, there was that's a lot of forage that represents a lot of pounds of forage that can be cycled into an animal and you know, the, the trend the segue i was looking at looking for was in the same article it was also said that if we grazed correctly we wouldn't need to have cattle west of the mississippi that we could raise enough beef east of the mississippi river we wouldn't need to have any cattle out in the plains if we grazed at high densities and we're using things like, you know, silva pasture and grazing, you know, doing things like grazing levees. The, do you remember reading anything like that or did I make all that up? No, I remember something similar to that because I remember my takeaway from it is it's, it's like these environmentalists compare it back to if we would get these cattle off the land, then we can graze, you know, we could quit feeding them corn and we'll grow all this soybeans and, you know, everybody going to eat tofu or some crap. But the other knee jerk reaction I have is, okay, if, if we can do that well grazing, what does that say about our grazing management? I mean, if there is that kind of upside potential, what kind of wasted opportunity is there really out there on this land? And, you know, I, I don't, I'm not a grazing expert by any means, but I'm fascinated by it. I do study it. I look at things, I scratch my head, you see these improvements and it's just like, oh my gosh, you know, we could all be doing so much better. Yeah, I think we could. And so, all right, all right. I just we're gonna come out and say it. The grass guy, the grass manager, the grazing manager, you're competing against a, a a market that's subsidized. You're competing against subsidized gain from corn, from soybeans, from distillers grain, from from all those byproducts, right? If you're on grass, you're competing against you know that's what you're competing against. If I go buy, you know, if we go buy, if 
we go buy calves to try to graze and put pounds on, we're still competing against the guys that are that are subsidized with the corn and the soybeans in the feedlots, right? Those are subsidized pounds. At that, am I off base? Uh, where do you get that they're subsidized? Like if they're growing their own feed. If you're growing a crop that you put crop insurance on and that everybody else is putting crop insurance on, that's a subsidy. And when there's a, the subsidies distort the price, right? Yeah. And it seems like almost like most of the feed stuffs that we're trying to feed to cattle, other than grass standing in a pasture, has some sort of subsidy attached to it, right? Right. I mean, I, the, here's here's where I'm having a hard time following you, Brian. It's like if if I'm going to feed corn, I got to buy it. Right. And it costs me a shit ton of money to buy that corn. Um, one of the reasons I don't feed distillers is I look at what their corn bid is, and and I always convert everything back to the price per head, per pound because cattle eat pounds per head, so it's easier for me to keep that straight in my mind that way. The price per pound of corn going into the ethanol plant versus the price per pound of distillers coming out of the ethanol plant, we need to get one thing straight. They are in the distillers grain business because I would leave a bigger check at the ethanol plant than what they give me if I haul corn in there. The distillers grain costs more. Not to mention the water that I'm hauling out of there, paying freight both ways. And oh, by the way, we get to sell this ethanol over here as our byproduct now. It is a distiller's grain business. It is not an ethanol business. So that's, I, I, I guess where I'm having a hard time tracking you is if you don't raise your own feed and you're writing checks for all that, it costs money. And if I'm writing checks for it, I'm not subsidized. But exactly to your point, and, and I hear this, feed yards call it damage control. We got to go buy this quarter over here and put a pivot on it so we can grow our own feed because we can grow our feed cheaper than we can buy it. And then they charge themselves the cost of production, not the market value of that feed. And then they have a cheap cost of gain. Okay. And of course, yes, you get, you get all the government programs that go along with it. So I, I think it depends on if, yeah, if you're raising it, or if you're the guy writing a check to buy it from your neighbor. Right. Raising it, raising it, buying it. Yeah, two different scenarios. And the guy buying it, I just wonder what the true cost of those of that commodity would be if we got rid of, I'm, I'm not necessarily advocating doing this because it's like cold turkey because that would be a catastrophe, I think. What if we just took all the subsidies away, took all the crop insurance away, we took all the subsidies away, we took all the price supports away, took all of it away, just close the FSA office and, and move on with life. I wonder how different ag would look in one year and in five years from what we have today. You know, when I was young, my dad, you know, he took me in the FSA office, he signed me up. And so I've done that. You know, I've, I've, I've taken those government payments. I've been in the program. 
And I'm trying to think it was probably in about 07, 08. I got out. But I'm not in the government farm program. The neat thing about it was when you're not in the program, you make your own decisions. Yep. And, you know, weather situations, market situations, I call my own shots. I feel like I am much more flexible than what I can do. And, and, and man, I'll tell you, Brian, at first, when you get rid of the safety net, it feels scary. You know, that's, that's what I knew. That's how I grew up. That's what everybody around here does. Now there's like me and one other guy in the county that are the crazies that aren't in any kind of government farm program. But, oh, my gosh, the freedom, the flexibility, the sovereignty, everything that comes with it. Oh, and not to mention, I feel like I've done better. I mean, it would I, – I agree with you. I think it would improve a lot of things. But I've heard this from hog farmers. If they have to take the hogs out of the barn and raise them on dirt again, they would just quit. And I think if you got rid of the FSA office, I think you would see a lot of people just quit. Maybe those are the people that need to quit. Well, I'm, I'm somebody else. I'm not the guy that said this. I'm going to repeat something that I heard. There was a dairy farmer. I can't remember where he's from, somewhere back east, Delaware, Pennsylvania. I mean, it's somewhere back in that area. And he made the comment that all the farm programs do is keep the bad actors in business. Or maybe not the bad actors, the poor farmers in business. I would agree. Kind of hard to argue that logic. It is. It is, but it's also very difficult to imagine a system where those things haven't existed too. You know, we need to have people farming the land. I mean, it's the basis of civilization is agriculture. If we can't grow enough food to feed ourselves and a couple other people, we're, we don't have a civilization. Yeah, I, I don't know. I, I don't have a follow up with that, I guess. <laughs> that was that was a wild rabbit trail, huh? Hey, welcome to Ranching Reboot. <laughs> That's, but, you know, the uh, thing is, those kind of things need to be talked about. That's one thing I like about your podcast, Brian. I, you know, you talk about what is it? Exposing friends to radical content or something in that one of your taglines yes because your podcast really pissed me off i'm gonna be honest but <laughs> i think that's kind of the point of it all you know make people think about some of those things and and i don't i don't consider myself to be one of those advocate types you know but when some of our commodity groups are getting in bed with these extreme environmentalist groups and things like that, you know, I mean, I see it as a real issue. Um, things change when you have a kid. Um, you know, I'm, I'm looking at my daughter and her future and, you know, she's kind of expressed a little interest. If, you know, she can't make it into the WNBA, she thinks she wants to raise cattle. Okay, we got to start thinking about that next generation and what's that going to look like. And, you know, when you start seeing encroachment on on the land, um, 
lot of the pastures I own, there's wind farm going up, there's pipelines going in. Um, that Keystone pipeline spill wasn't too far from that pasture. Okay. That I own, you know, I actually, those kind of the guy that had it spill in his Creek down in Kansas. Yeah. I know that guy. Okay. Yeah. As I said, that ain't very far from me. Those things kind of start to get a little bit scary. And I can't remember who said it, but you eat your landscape, you know, and if we start covering the landscape with solar panels and wind turbines and, you know, pipeline spills and those kinds of things, we're going to go hungry. Well, we've already covered it with Roundup and synthetic fertilizers and neonicotinoids. Yep. And that's, that's, I mean, that stuff's all around us. I mean, geez. You know, I'm in farmer country and, you know, the, these these chemicals that people will put down, they're so long acting. And then this hailstorm comes through. Well, I, re, I can't replant and plant this because this chemical is still on that soil. Well, wasn't that a brilliant move? Yeah. You know, I... So in my context, you know, my place is all grass and some of the folks have heard me talk about this and this would have happened, I guess this would have happened kind of like uh, the first couple of weeks of June is, so my, I have a neighbor off my South fence line who's got two farm fields. I mean, they're both pretty small, 40, 60 acres, something like that. He had one of them in wheat and one of them in oats this year. And like everybody else, every you know every other wheat field in the country, it got full of pigweeds, kochia, and crabgrass. Great. So he he hired the spray plane to come out and spray it. They sprayed one field, came back three days later, sprayed the other field. Three days after that, he was out there swathing it and had it bailed. And oh, yeah. Well, there was some overspray on my pastures. And north of those fields, all my weeds, all my forbs, all my wildflowers were gone for a quarter mile. Almost a quarter mile. Like 500 yards. There were, there were dead plants from that spray 500 yards away. And yeah, I, I talked to the spray company. I've talked to their insurance company. You think I'm going to get anything from that? So what what's the damage? I mean, like, is, is there quantifiable damage to the ranch, to my grass? Not really. I mean, that that's really hard to put a number to. But we hurt biodiversity because there's plant species yeah. that aren't there anymore. We remove pollinator habitat. And if you remove the pollinator habitat, you know, what's the next link in the food chain that gets affected up, you know, up from pollinators. So it's like, oh, well, it's just a little bit of spray. Don't worry about that. You're going to grow more grass in your pasture. No, that's not the point. That's not the point. You're missing the point. The point is you shouldn't overspray me anyway. Like drift shouldn't be happening. And even though it's hard for you to measure, I can still see the loss. I can see the loss of biodiversity that's going to take years to recover. I can see the loss of grazing plants that cattle would use. Even like, don't stand there and tell me cows don't eat pigweeds and kosher. Like, please, please, Mr. Insurance man, 
tell me cows and cows don't eat pigweeds and kosher because I can show you video of them eating both. Taken yesterday. Like, don't tell me that that yeah. that's not a good plant. Don't tell me you're doing me a favor. Well, that's no. I I compare it to a hardware store. You know, if you walk into a hardware store, you see a robust inventory of different tools. How many different hammers? you see hanging on the wall at your local hardware store. I mean, I don't even know why we need that many different types of hammers, but apparently there's a need for it. And, and, and that's kind of what I compare it to is you have to have that robust inventory. That's the whole point. Just like you said about biodiversity. And it, it's funny to me how the culture has changed. As I remember, if you sprayed and it drifted on your neighbor, you just bought that field. But that now, was the 90s, Doug. <laughs> that was the night. That's why I said I remember. I just, you know, I'm going to date myself here a little bit. But now, if you don't plant dicamba-resistant beans and your neighbor sprays and your beans die, it's your fault because you didn't plant beans that are resistant to the chemicals they use. At one point in time, your right to swing your fist ended where my nose began. And now that no longer applies. And it, I, it especially where I live in farmer country, it's like these corn farmers, these irrigators can dump whatever they want. Whatever, I mean, whatever chemicals, pump water runs off their field, cuts a ditch under your fence, you know, and it might even be their half of the fence and their pivot and their farming practices that cause the ditch, but I own the cattle. So now, that becomes my problem. Now, I also own small feed yard, and that's where the cattle are at in the winter time. If I, if any runoff from that feed yard goes across the neighbor's fence, guess what? It's on you. You're darn right it is. So it's like, yeah, there's a double standard here in farmer country, and it, it, it kind of drives me nuts a little bit sometimes, but... Um, I, I kind of try to always make this a point to my daughter, you know, cause kids aren't always aware of this. Kids just act the way the kids act and that's, you know, they're young and trying to figure it out, but situational awareness, you know, don't be standing up on the bleachers because the people behind you can't see through you sit out, be, you know, be self-aware of what you're doing and how it affects other people around you. It's not that hard. And be a good damn neighbor. Right? Don't be self-aware and be a good neighbor. It it shouldn't be that hard. And I think that a lot, I think, I feel like a lot of folks get away with some, with practices by justifying it by saying, we've got to feed the world. We've got to feed the world. And Doug, I'm getting really tired of hearing we got to feed the world, especially from somebody that's growing yellow number two dent corn and soybeans. Like, I'm, I'm sorry, you're not feeding the world. You're feeding cows in a feedlot, either in western Kansas or in the Texas panhandle. That's what you're growing to feed. Yeah, we export beef. We also eat a lot of it. But here are the facts. 85% of the world is fed by subsistence farmers on 10 acres or less. 
85% of the world is fed by subsistence farmers on 10 acres or less. So now tell me, are we feeding the world or are we feeding multinational big ag corporate profits that they're exporting off seas or overseas offshore? I mean, take a step back and look at it from a 30,000 foot view. JBS, Smithfield, Tyson, Marfrig, offshore. I mean, these people are making a hell of a lot of money in the meat, in, in chicken, in pork, and in beef, and they're sending that money overseas. We aren't feeding the world. We're, we're feeding a few rich corporate corporate cronies. And, and from where I'm sitting, it looks like they're using the American farmer and the American rancher as a pass-through for federal dollars to go enrich their, their foreign cronies that run these companies. And, and I can't remember who said this. I'd sure like to give them credit for it. But, you know, just like you touched on, we got to make sure we're feeding the world. We're feeding the world. What about the part where the world gets fed? Soil health, all that stuff kind of, you know. It's, I mean, if, if we're going to keep raising more and more people, more and more mouths to feed, I mean, you got to take care of the base that's going to, I mean, the cost of feeding the world, okay, now we have hyper-processed, quote, food in Dollar General that people are going to buy with government food benefits. Like the ultra-processed junk food that's cheap and available, that's only made possible because of our food system, it's giving us all the health problems that we need to have an overcomplicated health system to pay for and to try to fix it's like we're shooting ourselves in the foot <laughs> by the ag policy that we've had for 40 years get big or get out we completely ignore the needs of a local community to be self-sufficient and to feed itself and to grow enough that they can export like that was i thought that was the whole point but we got to feed the world so everybody's got to get big or get out, get more acres, get bigger tractors. We need, you know, we need better spray. We need better seeds. Yields got to go up. Great. American farmer, most efficient in the world. The American farmer feeds, what, 170 people now? That's all propaganda. It's all bullshit. Because we can't even feed our own communities, Doug. We can't even feed our own communities. You know, we talk about what it was like, you know, in the 90s. Probably even back into the 80s, I think our local grocery store at Medicine Lodge still got most of their produce from a guy whose family had been growing produce in town for 50 freaking years. He retired. Like, he by the 1980s, I think he was almost, he was in his 90s. His name was Jack Carter. He was a black man that lived next to my grandfather. And I'm glad that I met him when I did. But him and his family, going back through some of the old history books for the county, him and his family uh, came to the area, and that's what they did. They were vegetable farmers. So how long has it really been since we've been able to have local food in our grocery stores? 30, 40 years? I mean, it's, it's, probably, it's probably pretty recent, you know, comparatively speaking. And we've just, we've gone so far away from that in the name of consolidation, in the name of feed the world, 
and in the name of get bigger, get out. And I really hope that, you know, over the next few years that we can reverse that trend and we can get more small holders that are doing diversified things and trying to feed our communities. You know, uh, you say you're in Beatrice. Yeah. Beatrice. Yeah. It's an hour South of Lincoln. Okay. Where's your nearest packing plant? Uh, neither be in Grand Island or Skyler. So an hour Two two hours. So you still have to drive two hours to get to a packing plant. Yeah. Uh, Omaha, Grand Rose still there. That's still going to be two hours. So what was it like in the eighties and nineties? Like, right after the checkoff and, and the wave of consolidation started, do you have any idea how many lockers and, and there were, I, I couldn't tell you how many there were, but I know that there were some smaller local ones. I couldn't tell you what the company names were. You know, when you go back to the eighties, you know, I'm a young kid. I still remember the Omaha stockyards, you know, uh, dad and grandpa used to take a lot of cattle up there. You know, the only thing that's left the Omaha Stockyards now is the old exchange building still there, and it's low-income apartments. It's really heart-wrenching to see what the history and everything, what they've done to that area. But, I mean, to your point, though, yeah, we lose Packers. I I tell this story, and I'm not trying to bash my customer in any way. I mean, I need the Packer to make money, so, you know, they still buy cattle. But I have not had any fats since 2015 and this is the reason why i've got this pan of fats we show list them feed yard calls me one morning and says okay we got a bit of this on your cattle and i kind of sit there and think about it in my head for a little bit okay yep if they weigh what you say they weigh and the cost of gain is what you say it is, we can sell these fats and I can go buy these other replacement cattle. I can make it work. I said, you bet. Yank the chain on them. The feed yard vendor says, all right, I'll call you back in a few hours and let you know what happens. And I said, wait a minute, hold the phone. Don't you have to call that packer buyer and tell him he just bought a pen? Like, what's this calling me back stuff? The bid was only good if he if that buyer could buy the entire show list. Translation, my ability to sell my cattle is now in some incompetent fool's hands. Because you know somebody else owns a pen of cattle in that feed yard that says, I have to set a good example for the kids and stand up to this packer, and I'm not going to take that bid. Now I can't sell my cattle. And it's, so, not, like the another, yard, it's not like there's another packer coming in to look at the show list. There's one. one well, and here's what happened. So I asked him, who's the bid from? He said, Cargill. I said, what about uh, JBS? And this is, you know, they still own the Five Rivers yards at the time. Well, they're they're not buying cattle this week. Yeah, no shit. When you own 900,000 head of your own, you don't need my little group. I said, what about Tyson? Well, Tyson had bought a whole bunch the week before. Their kill week's full. They don't need any this week. I know Greater O is out because these cattle were not fancy enough to get the Greater O buyer's attention. How convenient for Cargill. I mean, I, I just explained to you what the collusion looks like. Now, here's the neat thing. I still had some contacts at the time at Cargill, and so that conversation goes like, what's this bullcrap your buyer's pulling out in the country? Or I thought we were friends. Are we doing business or not? And I got that pen sold. 
So then I called the feed yard back and I said, well, my trucks will be here on this day, load them out and uh, I'll send, you know, I'll square up the feed bill with you. And, and, and that's how we took care of that. But since that time, I haven't put any cattle back on in a custom feed yard. I mean, you've got us, and that kind of comes back to dealing with those pesky farmer feeders we talked about earlier. You kind of got to stand up to them a little bit. And the Packers are so good at this game, I don't even think they want to play the game anymore. They're bored with it. Do you think they've got AI now telling them when to buy, when to sell, when to buy, and what price? Oh, gosh, I don't know anything about any that stuff. <laughs> I, I was, when, when uh, I finally picked a date to do this podcast with you, you know, and I clicked that button and all of a sudden it shows up on the calendar on my phone. I'm like, holy smokes, that just freaks me out. <laughs> like, you just got into my phone somehow. That, that ain't supposed <laughs> to happen. I don't know anything about AI, Brian. That's that's artificial insemination, and my conception rates aren't that good. <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough. Fair enough. Yeah, I, uh, I switched the scheduling system old, back probably the beginning of the year, and my no-show rate, has dropped my confusion about time zones has disappeared um yeah it's just it it's made it a little easier i liked it because on other times when we do interviews it's like well i got this time open on my date no that's that's full for me and you go back and forth back and forth yours just the calendar pops up your day pick your time i'm like wow yep that was easy it, it, I'll be honest. Sometimes it's not like the most ideal, um, most ideal thing for ranching to do podcast first thing in the morning. But it is what it is. It's only supposed to be ninety today, so I'm, I'm not going to mind working this afternoon. That's the, the probably the downside of that. You know, you asked me to do this interview what two months ago. That's it also made it a little easier to procrastinate and like, oh no, I'm bailing. Hey, it's going to be hot this week and. Oh well, I'm gonna go do this, and I just kept putting it off, putting it off, and and but yeah. So so if you don't like doing it first thing in the morning, I apologize. I like yeah, I can get up. I'll make my rounds and oh no no no, know, I'm, I'm gonna be I'm gonna be done by eight o'clock in the morning. Yeah, I, I'm not. Don't don't get me wrong. I'm not complaining. Um, other than the fact that I was gone Thursday, Friday, I got back late Friday. Um. So I had some time to spend out there on Saturday. I was busy yesterday morning, and then we had to go do calves last night. Just really, I just haven't had much. I guess I haven't had a weekend, and I really haven't looked at my cows a whole lot in the last four days. So it'll be fine. And, and I don't. And and I sympathize with you. And I, I don't know that people. I'm just going to throw this out there for your listeners. I don't know that people realize the time that guys like you and I put in behind the scenes, like for you to do a podcast, for me to do a marketing school, you know, and, and, and then still be a family man, still run the ranch. It's a lot. Yeah, for sure. You know, I, people ask me like, well, how much time does it take to do that podcast? I'm like, well, it just usually takes about two, two and a half hours to record an episode. Well, what else does it take after that? And then I start kind of running through like, well, you know, you got to find a guest. You got to negotiate with them. You got to communicate with them. 
I got to do some background research. You know, so that's all all before I ever hit the record button. And then after you hit the record button, I got to do editing. I got to edit the file. I got I to write the intro. Got to record that. Got to throw the ads in. Got to write the show notes. Got to post it. Got to make sure all the links are there. Got to do the cover art. And then if I have time left over, you know, in, in my podcast budget time for the week, then I'll do some, you know, then I'll make some clips and I'll, you know, make some posts and try to promote the episode, get some extra people to listen to it. But some weeks that gets done. Some weeks I spend more time at the ranch looking at cows <laughs> and fixing fence and makes, makes you enjoy the time on the ranch a lot more. Yeah. At least it does for me. But then again, there's days, you know, when it's like 107, I don't mind sitting down here in the studio where it, when it's 107 outside, <laughs> that's, that's kind of a nice part of it. Last week was, last week was brutal. Oh, we got a little more warm weather coming. I think next week or so, while this is sitting on my hard drive waiting to be released, uh, hopefully we'll be, hopefully by the time this one comes out, should be mid September and we are done with 95 or better and on the downhill run to fall. Let's hope. So, so before we go, let's uh, tell me about your school. Why, why would somebody want to come to your school? I'll teach you everything they couldn't and wouldn't teach you in college. I'll teach you how to make money. Okay. How'd you like that for an elevator speech? That was, that was a short trip. Uh, Um, (laughs) No, listen, when, when I, when I do my schools, you know, here's the longer, more expanded version. I always start every school with what I call the psychology lesson. I talk about paradigms, how they control our behavior how they're hard, why they're hard to change, how to change them. Because you, if you've never seen sell by marketing before and you're exposed to that new idea, that the existing paradigm is going to put up a fight. And those two little voices, you know, I, I refer to the angel character. Like, you remember the old cartoons, Bugs Bunny had the angel character on one shoulder, the devil on the other, and they're going to talk. And you have to make sure that the right angel wins that fight. Um, And, and, that applies to a lot of other things. I've had more feedback on that portion of the school than anything. You know, you take the ranchers up in the Dakotas, got crushed with them blizzards, and it, it, it weighs on you mentally. And they told me that they felt like that helped their mental toughness and their focus on what they needed to get done during that blizzard, and it got them through that portion. You know, then we'll go into what now what I call the inventory pyramid, you know, your grass money, cattle, and people, and how time is a requirement to change all those things. So I call that portion the resource management and the value relationships between those things in the triangle. Then on the second day of the school, I get into the math. You know, I'll get into some value gain calculations. We'll get into the cattle square, how to build a barn card, what the maximum amount that you can pay for replacement cattle, how you figure that and still hit your profit target with stockers. The big crescendo at the end of day two is trading cows and running like a closed herd concept. And so I will show you the value relationships between different cows and and how you would go about making those trades. And uh, the second day is a lot of fun. You know, that's when you really see people just, man, their faces light up. And when it, when, when it clicks 
and they see those relationships and you start to see the potential of the money that can be made. And here's the neat thing about the cattle business. I don't think anybody talks about. I started from scratch $7,000 and I turned it into a seven figure business. There is so much money left on the table because when it comes to marketing, people are just, they're, they're incompetent. Marketing hard. I I hate to use this word, but it's the word that always gets thrown around. You take advantage of the incompetence and you prosper yourself from it. So, you know, like Robert Kiyosaki and his Rich Dad, Poor Dad, Cash Flow Quadrant books, you know, he talks about market or uh, what does he call it? Financial literacy. So I just hijacked his term. I will teach you market literacy so you can spot these relationships and prosper yourself from it. My goal, Brian, is ranching will never be easy, but it should be simple. Let's not overcomplicate things. Let's not create a lot of clutter. I like to try to reduce things down to the ridiculous and make it look very simple. And when you can understand that, then yeah, it, it, it clicks. I like how you said that. It doesn't have to be easy, but it should be simple. It should be simple, but ranching is going to be hard. I mean, it's just, it's never going to be easy. Yeah. This thought that I had, you got to teach marketing. And yes, there are a lot of us out there that are incompetent marketers. And I will, I will, I'll slap that label right square on my forehead because I suck at marketing. I suck at selling myself. And it's something that I'm really putting a lot of effort into working on. Um, Cause you know, I got to figure out how to try to promote this podcast a little bit better than I have been. And I think that's why it, not that's why, but that's how we've ended up where we are in ag is because a lot of farmers and ranchers, we don't want to market. We don't want to learn how to market beef or we don't want to go, you know, and grow cantaloupes and watermelons and peaches and this and try to market everything. It's like, no, we want it to be simple. We want to do one thing. We want it to be simple. And it's driven us, I think, you know, to give up our marketing power. To give up our marketing oh, for sure. I mean, give up our marketing power. And that's also what made the narrative of, of get big or get out so attractive. Like, well, this is not really working on small scale, but it's kind of making a little money. If I just did a whole bunch more of this, that'd be better, right? And you you, you direct market beef, right? Sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt you, but you yeah. direct market beef, right? A little bit. We're that's where we were heading, and we're making a pivot. Uh, we're going to be partnering with a guy I've been running cattle with for over for two and a half years. He's buying into his uncle or buying his uncle's direct marketing business that he's already been a part of. So it's I'm going to be helping him add capacity into his system, where he's already got an existing marketing outlet and apparatus and customer base. And I'm just going to reduce some risk and reduce some risk and some some 
I guess, gain back some quality of life. So yes and no, I, ha- I have a bunch of freezer beef for sale that I, I need to market and I need to get moved. Um, I, and I don't know if that answered your question. I didn't really want to get too well, far, it, too deep down a rabbit trail. It, it gives me an idea. Um, years ago, we were doing quite a bit of that. And, you know, somebody grills steaks for their friends. Oh, these are good steaks. Where'd you get them? Oh, I know a guy. I was that guy, you know, and so it just kept growing, growing, growing. And, you know, we had some good local lockers and, you know, one guy lost his wife and he quit butchering and, you know, another locker caught fire, burned down. They didn't rebuild and we're losing these local lockers and the quality of the work that the lockers we have now has gone down. It's just declined. I mean, they're so busy. Everybody's trying to get a, you know, shackle space at the same locker and the quality of the work, they just don't care. You know, they don't care if they screw up your entire order and, you don't, you don't get the cuts that you asked for. And I got sick of it because we were doing so much of this. We were selling pigs. We were butchering chickens, you know, selling the beef. We, we were doing all of that stuff. And I finally just got sick of it. And I'm like, dealing with these lockers is such a pain in the rear end. And, you know, sometimes you have a customer that orders a quarter that writes you a bad check and then you're always trying to track them down or they want to be put on a payment plan and stuff like that. And I absolutely just had it. I just quit. I'm like, we're not doing this anymore. It's easier for me to load Peterbilt's, which goes right back to what you said. I want something simple. I just want to be able to go to this channel and just sell my product. I'm guilty of that. But it's not because I had anything against the consumer. It was them doggone lockers. And that that's a fair point. That's a fair point. Lockers can be difficult to deal with. I'm fortunate. I've got a USDA locker that's been in business for quite a while. They're 45 minutes away. They're fantastic to deal with. I mean, they, they're great folks to deal with. They did everything everything exactly the way they said they were going to do. I mean, we had a pretty complicated cut order last time we sent animals down. They were, they were, I'm not going to say they were hesitant, but they did say, well, this, this, and this could be a problem. You might want to think about this, this, and this instead. Okay. We made some adjustments, but they were great to work with. Um, And I have, I have no complaints about them. And what's even better is we just had a new locker open up that I haven't used yet that's only 20 miles away, like in my home. Oh, nice. Yeah. We got a brand new 50 head a week plant just opened up about two months ago in my hometown. Wow. And I think he might be missing an opportunity because they have no retail space. You like Mm -hmm. a, a public customer can't just walk in and buy a pound of ground beef. Like they're not set up to do that. And I can go, I could go both ways on that. I mean, I could go both ways on that and I can see how not having a retail space takes a lot of, takes a lot of bullshit off their plate. I mean, and then that's probably a full-time employee that it would take to run that retail space anyway. So I can see why they, you know, why in an operation like that, that he built from the ground up, he wouldn't want to include that. But I think we're just really, you know, we're fortunate that we have, I've got two USDA facilities within an hour and an hour and a half 
away, there's a really great state inspected plant that I can use for other stuff that, I mean, I used them for a bunch last year. So we've got some, you know, there's some good options around for processing. We're kind of lucky that way. Um, and Doug, I, I hate, I hate to go cause we're having such a great yeah. conversation, but I do have another meeting after this. Um, so when, when you had, tell me about your next couple of schools coming up, where they at? How can um, find we, right now, the only one on the schedules the first week of December, I want to say it's like the fifth and sixth, if I remember correctly, that will be in Beatrice, Nebraska. Um, there will be a couple in early 2024. Excuse me. We haven't set a date for those yet. We're kind of waiting for our daughter's basketball schedule to come out. But as soon as we get that, we will pick some dates. And uh, uh, the, all of that information. What's that? The tyranny of the school activity calendar. Oh, little, oh, little oh, she, this club ball, she... We travel. We let me just say this: little girls' basketball runs everything around me. Um, but as soon as we get those dates set, we'll update them. They will be on my website, mrcattlemaster.com. And you already kind of mentioned the date that you think this podcast come out, but I will be at Husker Harvest Days, middle of September. I'm giving some talks out there all three days, and you know that's always a fun time. Um, you get to visit with producers and hang out and visit and they ask a lot of questions and I kind of really enjoy that show. When is Husker Harvest Days? Is that the second week of September or third week? Second. It's right in the middle. I think it's like the 12th through the 14th this year. Okay. So that'll be the week after uh, there's the Wyoming Farm Ranch and Hemp Show that uh, that I've been asked to be at. So I'm going to be there and maybe the week after, um, if I don't have anything better to do, maybe I'll slide up for Husker Harvest Days. So cool. I think that week looks fairly clear. Let's 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 like 25% chance that that might happen. Yeah. Well, this year, I understand this. This is one of those different years and I'm kind of curious to see what attendance will be like. Because, you know, looking at how our cornfields change this week, <laughs> I don't know if attendance is going to be that great this year. But we'll see. I know the conferences that the last couple that I've been at have been well attended, but that's also kind of on the on the regenerative and soil health side. Sure. All right. So we got MrCattlemaster.com. Um, anywhere you like to be contacted on social media or you know, really I'm not a big social media guy. I'm a little bit more old school. Just call me or send me a text. Okay. And they can find all that on Mr. Cattlemaster. That, that, yep. The contact info's on that page, you know, and, and some people prefer emails. You know, I, I, I try to reply to emails mostly in the mornings and then try to ignore them the best I can the rest of the day. <laughs> <laughs> so that's, that's kind of part of my morning routine. But, um, and then I've got the, uh, Doug's market Intel blog on beef magazines website. Okay. Very so cool. I, I try to be like you and expose people to radical content. Got to sh- shake a tree and alter and uh, challenge paradigms every once in a while. Yep, absolutely. All right, Doug, I appreciate your time today. And uh, yeah, I wish we could continue. We'll just have to do it again. Yeah, thanks, Brian. Yep. Have a great day. And uh, y'all out there in podcast land, enjoy your week. If you enjoyed this episode, don't forget to like, share and subscribe to our podcast. We'd also love to hear your thoughts, so leave us a review if you haven't already. 
And don't forget to check out the Q&A and the polls on Spotify. Your support helps us bring more enlightening conversations and fresh stories from the world of farming and ranching. Thank you for listening to Ranching Reboot, your favorite regenerative ag podcast.